Take your Bibles, if you will, take, take your copy of the Word of God and go to 1 Timothy. 1 Timothy. I have enjoyed preaching through these pastoral epistles. This is our first one, of course. Uh, next month we will be in 2 Timothy, and then maybe, maybe uh, Titus. We'll see how that goes. Uh, but these two will be the first, 1 and 2 Timothy. Uh, welcome again to our Sunday morning service. It's good to be in the house of the Lord. I enjoy very much being in the house of the Lord. Preaching or not preaching, I like being around God's people. And, you know, somewhere along the line, I've been in and out of church my whole life, since I, as far as I can remember. I was a child, uh, raised up in church and all those things. I got away, as, as many young men do, unfortunately, uh, for a number of years, but came back. But other than those, that little spell there, I've been in church uh, much of my life. And somewhere around probably the early 30s, I fell in love with the church. Uh, I fell in love with God's people because I fell in love with God. And I just couldn't get enough. Every time those church doors were open, I wanted to go there. I was, I was that guy that was sitting in the, in the pew and the pastor says, all right, close your Bibles. I'm like, that's it? Go another hour. Let's hear some more. You know, I was excited to hear from the Word of God. Still am. And uh, I've asked the Lord to continue giving me that excitement because this book is exciting. If you read this book and you're bored, Something's not right. <laughs> Something that's just not right. Uh, but this morning we're going to, uh, again, in second, or First Timothy rather, First Timothy chapter 3. And as I've mentioned already in the introduction, First uh, Timothy has been our reading for this month. We've been deep diving into these six chapters. Uh, and so far this month I've preached from chapter 1. Uh, I've preached from chapter 2. And we won't hit every single thing in this, in this passage here, this epistle. That would take probably all year. Uh, but today we'll be in chapter 3. And today I want to talk to you about something that should be near and dear to all our hearts in a, in a different kind of way. And I hope that I can convey that difference as we, as we go through this this morning. But look at verse 16 of chapter 3. The Bible says, And without controversy, without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen of angels, preached unto the Gentiles, believed on in the world, received up into glory. I want to speak to us this morning about godliness, about godliness. Now, I want to caveat that with or add on maybe in the preface here with this message is geared towards believers. And it's geared toward those folks, those who have a redeemed heart. Those who want to live for God, those who have a desire to give their whole life to God. Godliness. You cannot be godly without God. I want to read just the first part of the verse 16 again. It says, And without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. Great is the mystery of godliness. Let us pray this morning. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you, Lord, for who you are. We thank you for your Son, Jesus Christ. We thank you for the cross. And Lord, I, I realize that this message is for your people. Your, your church is your people. And Lord, we need you this morning. Lord, I need you this morning to convey the truths of your word. Lord, help us, help me, Lord, to deliver what you've given to me. Help us all as, as, as members of Home Falls Baptist Church, as this group of believers that, who are gathered around in some small town in Bavaria, Lord, help us to get a hold of you this morning. Help us to open our hearts and our souls and our minds and receive whatever you have for us this morning. Help us to let our guards down, Lord, and receive what you have for us 
the truths of Scripture, Lord. Lord, help us to continue to be Berean and know that what's in the Bible is, is, is the end all be all, Lord. But with that said, as long as the Scriptures are preached properly, Lord, help us to be open to these things. Lord, help us to forget what happened yesterday and the day before and the day before that. Help us to forget what's on the agenda tomorrow and the day after and the day after, even what's for lunch or what we do for lunch or the rest of the day, Lord. Help us for a moment to ignore the, the entire world and put all our faculties on you. Be with us this morning. Protect us. Meet with us. Lord, we love you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. I want to talk to you again about godliness. You know, throughout this first epistle of Timothy, God, he speaks of godliness quite, quite often. Nine times he uses the word godliness just in this first letter to Timothy. In fact, if you look at 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 2, he says, For kings and for all that are in authority, we preached about this last week, uh, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and honesty. That is the first time Paul uses this word. Now, in the English Bible, it is used only one other time before this by by Luke in the book of Acts, and he uses, and he calls it holiness. But it's the same, same Greek word. But I want to talk to you this morning about what, before we get to godliness, what is godliness? I mean, we can probably figure that out, right? What is godliness? In the strictest sense, it means to be godlike, to be godly. If holiness means to be holy, godliness needs, means to be godly. If Christian, as an adjective, means to be Christ-like, then godliness, again, means godly. It's very simple for us. And if there was ever a time, as we, as we get into a message this morning, if there was ever a time in, in my life that I can look out onto the world where Christians needed to be godly, I think it's today. It's today. Now, I realize that followers of God should always be godly in any, in any time. But by far and large, today's churches, maybe I'm the only one, but today's churches have forgotten what it means to be godly. We come to church, we check the block, we read our Bible, we do our devotions, we check the block, but none of that goes with us. I'm not talking to anybody individually, I'm talking as many believers today. But as, I, as the Lord brought to me, as I was preaching and studying for this message, and if I can put it in my terms, if the shoe fits, I need to put it on, I need to wear it. And there are some things that apply directly to me in this message. Again, by far and large, today's believers, even churches, have forgotten what it means to be godly. It used to mean something. It used to mean something. And maybe it was my immaturity. As I mentioned earlier, I was raised in church. I was in a Christian school. I've never went to a public school from K-5 all the way to 12th grade, all in Christian schools. And godliness just seemed to be something. But those days seem long gone. Again, it used to mean something. It used to mean more even to me. I think godliness used to have an impact on every aspect of a Christian's life. Every aspect. It used to be, at least in my childhood, a mark of authenticity. That person's godly. Where do you go to church? Are you saved? Do you know the Lord? It was a given. But again, those days seem to be gone for the most part. I don't mean to imply that there's none godly anymore. There's, I don't mean to imply that there's none who do not try to do what's right for God and try to live. There's plenty of those, and praise God for those. But regardless of where our godliness meter is, there can be more. There can always be more. I think godliness today has been reduced to a preference that is easily cast aside. Godliness has taken a back seat to legalism. 
many times. From personal feelings to fantasies and personal freedoms to fear, many things have choked our divine desire to be godly. But I want to say this morning that godliness is scriptural. Godliness is biblical. Godliness is something every Christian should strive for. Look at 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse number 8. The Bible says, Bodily exercise profiteth little, but godliness is profitable unto all things. Now, when I was in the army, I had a, had a fellow soldier who was a subordinate of mine, and he, and he, would, he was a Christian, and he would, use, he would use this verse every day before PT. Pastor, or whatever. Uh, bodily exercise profits little, but I don't think that's what Paul's getting at here. Godliness is profitable in all things. It's beneficial to us. First 6 of chapter 5 of 1 Timothy, Paul writes that godliness with contentment is great gain. Great gain. It's beneficial for Christians to be godly. It's not a legalism thing. It's not a, we don't have a religion of do's and don'ts very specifically. We have a religion, if you want to call that, of done. It's all paid for by Christ on the cross. Godliness is beneficial. So it's not so much that being godly means that we should not live a certain way, but rather being godly means that we should live a certain way. The perspective is the other way around. Satan likes the other perspective. Half God said, look at all these things you can't have. Or look at what you can't have. He focuses on how we shouldn't live and not on how we should live. Don't let the devil have a foothold in your life. And I want to point out again this morning that godliness is connected to a lot of things. And we'll look at three of those things this morning that I think Paul brings to light. It's connected to some things in Scripture that I think many Christians today including myself, have swerved from time to time, as Paul talks about there in 1 Timothy, actually throughout the entire epistle. The epistle. But look at chapter 3 again, and I want you to look at verses 14 through 16 again. He says, These things write I unto thee, hoping to come unto thee shortly. But if I tarry long, that thou mayest know that thou mayest know how thou oughtest to behave in the, thyself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of truth. And without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen of angels, preached unto the Gentiles, believed on in the world, and received up in the glory. This morning, the title, the title of our message this morning is The Mystery of of godliness. And point number one, I want to focus back on that phrase there in verse 14, that thou mayest know how thou oughtest to behave. Our godliness is connected to conduct. It's connected to our conduct. That's no surprise, right? I would say that many sermons have been preached. You've probably heard many sermons and many books have been written on the difference between our position in Christ and our practice in Christ. I have preached about it myself, even putting it a little different by recognizing the contrast between our belief and our behavior. And this is a scriptural truth. And it's evident even in the life of Paul. In Romans chapter 7, he shared his struggles. Many of y'all know the passage there between his position and his practice by stating this. He goes, I know that in me that is in my flesh dwelleth no good thing. For to will is present with me, but how to perform that which is good I find not. For the good that I would I do not, but the evil which I would not do, that I do. 
What he wants to do, he doesn't do. And what he doesn't want to do, he does. When Peter faced Jesus on the shores of Galilee, recorded there in John 21, he no doubt sat there as Jesus was burning the fish or cooking the fish rather there on that little circle in the, on the desert there. He no doubt sat there knowing that Peter's past behavior did not reflect his present belief. So yes, our practice doesn't always match up to our position. It's just the way we are. We are not perfect. Our behavior doesn't always match our belief. But it should. It should. I fear that many of us, myself included, who realize that we can't always be godly, give up on godliness altogether. We get to that point, well, I, I mess up on everything. Why, why do I keep trying? But Paul's usage of a phrase here is very significant. Look at verse number 14. But if I tarry long that thou mayest know that how thou oughtest to behave. That phrase ought to means that there is something every Christian should strive for, and this is godliness. Even in chapter 2, when Paul gave guidance on how women should adorn themselves, look at verse 10 of chapter 2. He says, but which becometh women professing godliness with good works. He puts good works and godliness together. Now, makes no position. Our godliness that Paul is talking about here is not the position. He's talking about our behavior, our practice because of that position. And he connects it to good works. I believe we as Christians are God's representatives, are we not? We are God's representatives on this earth. He even calls us ambassadors. Ambassadors. So our practice should very much match our position. Our behavior should very much match our belief. Our godliness should be reflected in our conduct. In Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 10 state that while we are saved by grace, y'all know the passage, saved by grace through faith, and not according to our practice, not according to works, we are created in Christ Jesus unto good works. Unto good works. We are created in Christ Jesus to practice our position. I think we could probably go home on that. We are created in Christ Jesus, now, I'm not talking about the initial creation, your falling being. I'm talking about when you are saved, that new creation, that new creature you have, you are created unto good works. We are created to behave like we believe and conduct ourselves in a godly manner. Every Christian should reflect godliness because godliness is connected to our conduct. But look at verse number 15 again. This is probably, well, I think they're all my favorite points this morning. But he says, if I tarry long, that thou mayest know how thou oughtest to behave thyself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of truth. Our godliness is not only connected to our conduct, but it's connected to this. It's connected to church. And maybe you're thinking, how, how is that possible? And we'll, we'll look at some things here. We'll look at some things here. In the previous passage and chapters, Paul has been instructing Timothy on what a local church should look like. I mean, he's talking about pastors and deacons. Later on, he talks about widows. It's all about what the church should look like and how she should perform, what doctrine she should do. In fact, in chapter 1, he wrote about the importance of doctrine. In chapter 2, he wrote about prayer and order in the church. Chapter 3 continues with how a church should be structured with pastors and deacons. And he did all these things to bring the most order to God's people. And in verse 15, as we've already read about this morning, he is writing these things to encourage godly conduct. 
But I want to point out that all of these things, in fact, the entirety of this epistle is predicated upon the importance, the identity and the definition of the New Testament church. What is the New Testament church? Remember, these letters were written to a pastor. They were written so that Timothy could lead the Ephesian church in accordance with the will of God. And you might ask, what does this have to do with our message this morning? Well, I believe the mystery of godliness spoke about there in verse 16 is connected to the mystery of the church in verse 15. After a lengthy dialogue in chapter 5 about the similarities between the oneness of an earthly marriage between a man and a woman, he continues talking about the relationship between Christ and the church. And he wrote that this also is a good or a great mystery. The church is a mystery. It's a mystery. Now, we're going to talk about that mystery for the rest of this sermon here uh, in different angles. But I want to point out now that the mystery of godliness is connected to the mystery of the church. This here is a mystery. And you're probably thinking, well, I'm here, so it can't, not, can't be too much of a mystery. So let's talk a little bit about this. Here in our text this morning, Paul elaborates on what is so special about the church. When we see how special the church is, we get to understand the mystery a little bit of the church. And maybe that mystery is not so mysterious to us, and we'll see that here in a moment. But number one, you see right there in the text that Paul writes that the church is the house of God. The house of God. How thou ought to behave thyself in the house of God. The Greek word used for house means exactly what it says. But it carries with it the idea of an, of an inhabited house. Not just a building and walls, but people in that house. In fact, as we'll go along and we'll see that it is the people in the building and not the building itself. It is the house of God. It can be referred to as the home of God or the household of God. It is the collection of born-again believers, you and I, who have physically, physically come together to worship now, we know that God's house is not made with hands. Paul is not referring to these walls, the light fixtures, the chairs you're sitting on. He's referring to you, to us, coming together this morning. No foundation made with hands is God's church. He is referring to those who have been redeemed and are assembled around the core scriptural doctrines of spirit and truth. But we'll talk more about that a little bit here in a moment. For now, know this. The biblical house of God or the church of God, by definition, cannot be called an assembly if it does not assemble. Congregations are congregations because they congregate. They come together. And if we put all that together, when we as born-again believers assemble in accordance with the scriptural order of a church, we come together as the very house of God. We are the collective tabernacle in which God dwells. We are God's house. It's not my house. It's not Shannon's house or Tyler's house. It is God's house. Now, if I were to ask you who lives in my house or Tyler's or Bill or anybody's house, you would say, well, he lives in the house. Well, who lives in God's house? God lives in God's house. We are God's house. We are his habitation. Speaking of the household of God in Ephesians 2, Paul wrote that we are built together. You and I are built together for a habitation of God through the Spirit. We are the household of God. And He is the head of the household. 
Now, if we are not just in God's house, but we are his household. Let's bring this back to our point this morning. Is that not reason enough to live godly? Should we not be a extremely it, we should be considered radical to the world's definition of godliness. This is God's house, God's house. And as I was preparing this sermon, as I was studying through these things, this is one of those things that was applicable to me. Now, I think a lot of the local church, anybody that's had any kind of dialogue with me over a time, you're going to know how I feel about the local church, how I think the Bible puts a lot of emphasis on the local church and the gathering of, of God's saints locally there. And I'm not so much fan of the invisible church because you can't do anything with the invisible church. You can do things with the visible local church. All the things in the Bible, the 117 times the word church or ecclesia is used in the New Testament. 95% of them refer to a local church, a church of Corinth, a church of Rome, so forth and so forth. But as I was preparing this sermon, the following thought came to my mind. As I asked myself, as I asked myself where I stood before God in the realm of godliness... In view of his church. And this is what I got a hold of. I just shared a little bit about you with my view of the local church, what I believe the Bible teaches. But the thought that came to my mind was if my view of God's people, if my view of God's church was as great as God's idea of his church, my godliness would not be at the forefront of any message of anything in my life. You're thinking, well, how is that possible? Because godliness would be a byproduct. It would be the natural outcome of agreeing with God in all areas of the local church. Our godliness, we, we preach about godliness, and, and Paul writes about godliness. But, I mean, think about it. If we really got a hold of the fact what Christ did for us on that cross, if we really got a hold of the fact where we used to be, and now we are, and I'm not talking physically, I'm talking spiritually, we had a one-way ticket to hell, and now we have a, an irreversible ticket to heaven, that should reflect in every aspect of our lives. We shouldn't have to preach about godliness. It would be a byproduct of who we really are. My godliness is therefore connected to God's idea of church. He died for the church. Christ loves the church. And my godliness should therefore be a reflection of who I am in the household of God. In the household of God. And to drive that point home even further, I think Paul writes what seems like almost a redundant statement by writing that the church belongs to the living God. Look at that again in verse number 15. But if I tarry long, that thou mayest know how thou oughtest to behave thyself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God. You know, to say that the house of God belongs to God is one thing. And it's a great thing to say that. But to say that it belongs to the living God, it's, it's a little different. It's a different aspect, I think. You see, Paul was writing again to Timothy, who pastored in the wicked and idolatrous city of Ephesus. Go and do some research. It was a unique city. And Ephesus, unfortunately, can be compared to almost any modern city today. While the Ephesians filled their spiritual void with statues of man-made deities, much of the world today fills that same void with man-made technology or other things. Even the philosophies from the Greco-Roman world of yesteryear are really not that much different at the core than many of the philosophies today. I mean, the attacks on God's structure of family today are unprecedented. From the murder of marriage 
to biblical marriage to the massacre of unborn children, the philosophies are not that much different from the Greco-Roman world. In fact, if the Bible is true, and it is, of course, as we draw closer and closer to the return of Christ, the wickedness in this world is going to continually increase, increase, and increase. In Paul's second letter to Timothy in chapter 3, verse 13, Paul wrote that evil men and seducers shall wax worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. This is the world that we live in today, two, uh, many 2,000 years from when he wrote this. But God's people, how we fit in all of this, we are not to be entangled with the affairs of this life. I had a friend of mine, my daughter was sharing with me, one of her friends actually, family friend I guess, and she was asking about all the things that are going on in this world. Are these, is this not the second seal being opened and all those things like that? And I know there may be a lot of differences of opinion there, but I try to follow this book as much as I, I possibly can. Christians are to comfort one another. We are not to face God's judgment on this world. We are His bride. Why would He judge His bride? Who are you as husbands? Do you go and slap... Your wife when she does something ridiculous? No. We love our wives and our wives love us. There's a great picture there of Christ in the church. It's probably better off said that she might slap me if I did something wrong. Um, she doesn't slap me, of course. But Christ loves his church and he will protect his church. Discipline us, yes. Protect us also. God's people are not to be entangled with the, affairs of, with the affairs of this life. We are to comfort one another. We are to be a godly people. We are not to be a church who worships, worships idols made of stone or silicone. We do not assemble because Jesus was some great teacher. We do not assemble because Jesus was some great revolutionary who changed the world forever. No, he's the head of our church, the very son of God. In Peter's great confession in Matthew 16, 16, his answer to who Jesus was, was abundantly clear. Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. Probably the most spectacular words that ever left Peter's mouth. Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. So we don't gather and sing songs about some religion, nor are we a part of some political movement as some churches think they are. We are here because of Christ, because of the risen Christ. We are the church of the living God. And that church, as Paul continues to write about, is also, you can see there, the pillar and ground of truth. Look at that verse again, verse 15. But if I tarry long, that thou mayest know how thou oughtest to behave thyself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of truth. You know, to a first century resident of Ephesus, the temple of Artemis, the temple of Diana in the English, was a well-known structure. Part of that structure still stands today, and you can see that hopefully right here. This is modern-day Ephesus. Well, what's left of it? That's the Temple of Artemis. Throughout history, it's been destroyed and rebuilt a number of times, I think three or four. But as you can see now, it's in ruins. It's in ruins. But notice those pillars. Interesting, yes? Now, we cannot be certain, but from the appearance of what this temple may have looked like in the first century, Paul's reference to the church being the pillar of truth may be a contrast of sorts. In other words, Paul told Timothy that I know about the temple. I know about that religion there and the influence of this cult there in Ephesus. I realize that many look to that temple for truth and guidance and all those things. And even those, those pillars seem to tower over man and the thoughts of men. 
And even though its foundation seems secure and indestructible, indestructible, it is a dead hope. And that is ever so evident that it is a dead hope. It's a dead hope. There is no life in the pagan worship of Diana. There's no life in the pagan worship of anything other. No, there's no hope in any worship other than God. You see, Diana's strength, Artemis, the strength of Artemis rests only in the imaginations of Satan and in the imaginations of man and is manifested in the materials used to build that structure. It's built with man's hands. But Paul, it's like Paul is saying, oh, Timothy, the house of God is not made with hands. The strength of the true church is not found in brick and mortar. We are the bride of Christ. We are the church of the living God, the real pillar of ground and truth. And that truth is found in the Lord Jesus Christ. Back in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 19 through 22, it's a lengthy read. I got it up here on the screen here, I think. It says, Ye are no more strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and of the household of God, and are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ Himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom all the building, fitly framed together, groweth unto an holy temple in the Lord, in whom ye also are builded together for a habitation of God through the Spirit. Now, friends, as we come together this morning as believers in the Lord Jesus, as redeemed souls, we gather and worship the Lord in spirit and in truth. When we as a church hold to the truths that are found in this book, when we are built upon the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, with Christ as our cornerstone, we too are fitly framed together, growing as a holy temple unto the Lord, where God Himself inhabits, and we become the pillar and ground of truth. Think about that. We are believers God is here. He's not only here. If you're a believer, He's here. He's also here. Is that not the best reason to live differently, to live godly? Godliness, therefore, should be one of our greatest attributes. The churches that are scattered across this globe and every century, including today, should always reflect the person of Jesus Christ. That should be our identity. We shouldn't identify, and you can park there for a long time, at anything. When we introduce ourselves, it shouldn't be male, female, whatever. It should be, I'm a Christian. I'm a redeemed believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I'm not saying there's not those definitions out there. I'm just saying that we, our identity in Christ should be number one above all. Above all. We should reflect the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the embodiment of godliness. Which brings us back to verse 16. Paul writes, without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. Now, Paul is not writing that godliness is a great mystery. In a certain aspect, he is. But let's look at this. As I've already alluded to this morning, the whole chapter, the whole concept, rather, of the New Testament church was a mystery in the Old Testament. None of the prophets foresaw the church age. They went right to the millennial, the kingdom age. They did not, they did not see the church age. That mystery that, they, that he's talking about here was not Christ coming as a conquering king. The mystery was God coming as a suffering servant. That's the mystery in which we live. He says, and without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh. 
manifest in the flesh. After the initial statement before the colon, there in that passage there, if you want to go back to verse 16, after the colon says, God was manifested in the flesh. There are six phrases there, and every single one of them point to Jesus Christ. From the blessed womb to the empty tomb, and it's all about Christ. He is the mystery of godliness. And therefore, our godliness is connected to Christ. Our godliness is connected to Christ. And as I was putting this together, the thought came to my mind, when I don't live godly, my ungodliness, because I'm a Christian, is also connected to Christ. We must be godly people because He is our God. And apart from Christ, there is no godliness. Notice again these phrases, which many believe uh, constitute a hymn there in the first century. Those six phrases there, they, they believe there were lyrics that the first century church used to sing. But notice these verses again. He says, Jesus was manifested in the flesh. We just spent a month of Sundays last, last year preaching and celebrating the fact that the Son of God became the Son of Man. And even though we believe it, that what's called the hypostatic union, the union of God and man, that's a great mystery, is it not? God all man and all, Jesus all God and all man. What a mystery that is. Number two, he says he was justified in the Spirit. The fact that Jesus, who knew no sin, became your sin and my sin, and was then justified of that sin, is mind-boggling. That God would do that. A great mystery indeed. And then number three, he was seen of angels. As created beings, the angels have witnessed the glory of God from time to time. They were at his birth. They were at his baptism, his burial, his ascension. Their hallelujahs on the night of his birth were genuine. Because I think of this, and we talked a little bit about this on Christmas. When they were there and those shepherds were out in the field and they, the angels frightened them. Then they got around the, the manger where baby Jesus was laying there. The angels have never seen God in the flesh until then. No wonder they were rejoicing. This is mysterious to them. It was spectacular. We have angels on this you know, they're greater than we are. and We understand all that. But God is infinitely more greater than they are. They are completely amazed. The Bible even says in 1 Peter that they desire to look into our salvation and God's dealings with man. I think it was very exciting and mysterious for them to see God in human form. And then number four, preached unto the Gentiles. What the angels saw, the nations heard. 1 Corinthians 1.21 states that by the foolishness of preaching, many will be saved. This preaching that we have here. The, I mean, think about the concept of, you know, of opening up the Word of God and preaching out truths and elaborating on the truths of God all the way back to the time of Ezekiel. And even before that, when they stood even behind a wooden pulpit there in the Old Testament, proclaiming the truth of the Scriptures to the world that's foolishness. The mystery is that people get saved from the preaching of the Word of God. And Christians' faith are, are increased, is increased by the preaching of the Word of God. It is the power of the Word of God. And number five, in result to the preaching of the Word of God, many believed on in the world. The fact that God has given us, you and me, the ability in faith and the capability to call out to God when we have no hope without Christ. And the fact that He just gives us some kind of faith, some mustard seed, and says, call upon me. Why? How mysterious is that? What a wonderful mystery that is. And number six, received up into glory. 
And lastly, not necessarily in chronological order, Christ was received up in glory. When Christ entered the Holy of Holies in the presence of God, what a day of victory that was for humanity. The day or the fact that we have a human intercessor sitting on the right hand of God the Father. That's mysterious. A human, all God, all man, sitting on the throne of God in the Holy of Holies, the real deal. And while there is so much more to elaborate on from this passage here, this passage, uh, verse number 16, I want to re reiterate that every phrase is about Jesus Christ. Some commentators have suggested this is one of the greatest passages in all of Scripture. But I want to point out also that every phrase in that verse is past tense. It's past tense. There's no looking forward, although there's a time for that, of course. There's certainly some things on the prophetic calendar, if you will, like the preaching and the believing, even in that passage, are still ongoing. But it's important to realize that what has been done, I think this is an important pa passage here, what Paul has written in the past tense, he is saying what has already been done is worthy enough, is enough to live godly without even God doing anything else. We are not and cannot be Christians because of, God, because of what God will do. Our hope is not in the future. It's in Christ and what He's already done on the cross. We have a religion, if you will, of done. We are and can be Christians because of what has already been done. It's been paid for. Even your sins tomorrow, they've been paid for. The cross is a done deal. Sin and death are a paid event. Paid for event in the past for those who believe. We are not to be godly to earn divine merit or forgiveness. We are to be godly because He is godly. Jesus is the man that God intended man to be. He is our example. In all that we are, He is our example in his submission, in his suffering, in his, in his study of the Scriptures, in his faith, in his trust in God, in every aspect of his life, he is our example. I remember, I guess it's back in the 80s, I really wasn't a fan of those bracelets, you know, the, what would Jesus do? I would not wear that, but there's some truth to that. When you're in a situation, what would Jesus do? What would the Lord, how would the Lord lead you in this? Now, I'm not saying that we should forget about those role models in our lives. Every Christian should have role models, Christian, good, foundational role models. And they should influence our lives. But at the top of that, what would Jesus do? He is our example. We are to be godly because He was godly. Yes, without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. But if you know Christ... That mystery has been revealed. You have Christ. He is revealed to you. He is the express image of God the Father. He is the reason we should be godly. Let's pray.